Carl's famous Alleluia chorus. And this is another one. That's the Alleluia Chorus from Saul, also by George Frederick Handel. Now, this is the story of what happened to young David after he killed Goliath. A full-scale opera production of this was one of the highlights of the last Adelaide Festival. It's 17 years since Australia had a chance to see an opera directed by Barry Kosky, which is weird because in Europe, Barry is the most famous opera director Australia has ever produced. And this production marked Kosky's return to the Adelaide Festival, which he ran back in 1996, a program which has been a benchmark for the Adelaide Festival ever since. Let's welcome Barry Kosky back to the show. Now, you first directed Saul, this production that's on in Adelaide, for the 2015 Glyndebourne Opera Festival. Glyndebourne is a legendary opera house in Essex in in England, and it got rapturous reviews. Um, On the surface, what story does this tell, Saul? Well, it's a very... I mean, what's fabulous about these Handel oratorios, and they're not operas, but the oratorios, because they were never written to be sort of staged... um, um, but really, theatre of the mind. I mean, he wrote he wrote these oratorios, very much aware of theatrical sort of constructs and what he saw as as, as a sort of psychological psychological development. But but the story is very very simple. Essentially, this this takes place the sort of the moment after David has killed Goliath, who's been terrorising. Um, the Israelites for a long time and um, so it, it opens in this sort of rapturous, joyous ecstasy and then everything goes wrong because David uh, c- comes into this family, Saul and his three children, his two daughters and his son Jonathan and a little bit like sort of Pasolini's Teorama um, uh, where the outsider comes in and destroys the family unit. Um, one of the daughters falls madly in love with him, his only son Jonathan f- falls madly in love with him. Saul is jealous of David and the other daughter um, loathes him. So it develops then into a sort of King Lear-like story of a, of a sort of family unit breaking down and the king eventually goes stark raving mad mm. and it all ends in blood, sweat and tears. So your production opens with this enormous head. Well, I guess when the audience comes in, they don't know it's an enormous head, do they? There's a head sitting no, they on don't the stage. See it. No, it's not. It's not in the darkness. They have, they, 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 that's, the head is revealed. Yeah, the head is revealed. Um, but do they realise that it's a big head initially or do, do they? does that no. not occur well, to them until someone walks it, in? Yeah, and I only see it when it's in relation to, to the other... Um, other characters on stage, or the real characters. I mean, it was very. I mean, the the scene begins. The 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 piece begins with this sort of ten minutes of jubilation chorus, and um, it is it is it's in C major, which is like you know international sort of key for jubilation and happiness, and and it's the music is just it it sort of rocks, and so we we thought we'd sort of have a literally a bit of Baroque roll, so to speak, and and also when we came to see, it, it was like, well, you know, if he's just slaughtered Goliath, I don't want to see the whole body. We thought, well, we just put the head there so um um, and then, of course, the audience have no idea where they're going to go for the next no, three hours. No. And it's so exciting because heads appear, sometimes severed, sometimes not, throughout the production. He's the hero of the day. David's the hero of the day. And he's played by a countertenor. And for Adelaide, you have the American countertenor, Christopher Lowry. Uh, but let's hear the British countertenor, Yeston Davies, in your original production.
It's a very strange effect to modern ears, Barry, because David's the hero of the battle. He's a giant killer, but he's played by a countertenor, which I guess sounds to us these days like a feminine voice. Yeah, I mean, these roles were were written for uh, in Handel's time for for Castrati, and or then eventually uh, when women were on stage, um, women sang them in in, in trouser roles. Um, but what is fabulous about the of the piece is that David is not uh, he's an anti-hero. He's not he's a boy uh, for a boy man for a start. He's not uh, Hercules. He's not this, and he's not a strapping sort of muscular um, testosterone. Um, uh, machine, and he is more this sort of melancholic sort of boy man, which makes it more disturbing. So he he actually drifts through the piece. You know, ne- you never quite know who he is and what he's doing. Uh, he's just, uh, uh, I suppose, a, pro- a projection uh, um, uh, page for people to to project their own fantasies and fears on, which is what happens to this family of, of the King Saul. But he, 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 the fact that the 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 the, the voice is not um, a heroic tenor or a baritone. And the fact that the music that David sings is rarely fast. There's one or two very short coloratura arrows for him, but it's more this sort of plaintive, elegiac... He gets his power from this sort of plaintive, elegiac quality, which I think is is Handel knew exactly what he was doing with the psychological landscape of his characters. Let's talk about the... The love interest, because the great love, the great passion in this story is the love between David and Jonathan, who's the king's son. And they really yeah. are lovers. I mean, full, this, it's not a euphemism. They are lovers. And yeah, this not- is, I mean, yes. I mean, there's this, 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 you know, a few thousand years of, of, of interesting um, analysis and, I mean, ranging from sort of Talmudic biblical analysis right through to 20th century analysis about what this relationship was. And, of course, for religious people, and I'm not religious, of course, it's very hard to believe that in the Old Testament is actually this extraordinary story of sort of gay love. Um, and it's not a platonic love. It's so people, of course, always talk about, you know, <laughs> no, that's not what the Bible intended. Um, that's not what, I mean, it's it's sort of outrageous. And, and of course, in Handel and, and Charles Jennings' text, it's very clear. I mean, he, and Jonathan sings this sort of beautiful aria to him, you are the darling of my soul. And Jonathan and Jonathan's reaction, uh, David's reaction to Jonathan's death, is is not a platonic. Uh, this is not a platonic relationship. No, no. He actually says, "How great is my distress! What language can my grief express? Great pleasure, great was the pleasure I enjoyed in thee." Yes, Much I mean, more. there's no, not one. <laughs> bar of ambiguity, either in in the text and more importantly in the music, because of course, as you said, it's the love story in the thing. So Handel reserves his great love music in this uh, piece uh, between Jonathan and David. And it's a very weird, because you don't see the relationship really developed. You see that the Jonathan becomes obsessed with him, but David also, David, um, the other daughter is of course obsessed with him. So there's a rivalry between the two children. And then very, very quickly, um, Jonathan is killed in battle with Saul in the second half. But then what happens in the piece is that you get this extraordinary sequence of musical numbers which last about 20 minutes, which um, is v- almost unparalleled in Handel's work of, of melancholic mourning. Uh, and it is like one glorious, sad 
uh, aria and chorus after the other, and it's like the last twenty minutes is is just electrifying music. Yeah, it's extremely beautiful at the end and very dark and strange. J- just to stay with 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 the love story, I just want to emphasise to the listener Barry Kosky that this is not a case of a director dislocating the text to make his own point. You are foregrounding something that is actually there 100%. So as you say, the libretto was written by a man named Charles Jennings, who was nobody's fool. Jennings knows what he's saying and so does Handel. So what's the story there? Well, what? Who was Charles Jennings? Um, well, I think he was, I mean, he was a very good friend of Handel's. I mean, he wrote a number of libretti for him and he, I mean, he's not the world's greatest poet. I mean, he can, it's very vivid text. And I, I mean, we know that from the history of 19th century opera that um, a lot of the great operas uh, don't have great texts. Some of the great operas do. I mean, not not everyone's Da Ponte and not everyone's um, Hoffman style. So um, the what what he gives uh, Handel, of course, is very flowery, direct, vivid language, um, which of course for a composer like Handel is 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 wonderful because he uses them. So this very rich powerful, sometimes melodramatic sort of metaphors, and sometimes the language does get a bit florid, but it's sort of it, it works very well. And I think it's we must remember this is an this is an eighteenth century vision of of an old testament story, mm. which of course is very, very particular because, you know, the 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 eighteenth century English religious and and also then musical and also then if you like theatrical, even though this wasn't written for the stage, but it is a it is a theatrical piece. Um uh, is a very particular world. I mean, they, they they rewrote Shakespeare in the 18th century. I mean, they rewrote a lot of Shakespeare plays with happy ends. Um, so it's very interesting that now we live in a world of authenticity. People are obsessed with, you know, what, what is authentic and what is not authentic. But to the 18th century um, artists, they took a Bible story and rewrote it and adapted it for their own purposes, you know, which is, you know, fantastic. Whether that's a, an Old Testament story or a, uh, Shakespeare play, um, and or Greek or Aeschylus or Sophocles, they were all rewritten. Um, and Charles Jennings sort of uh, sort of understood that because this wasn't written for the for a theatrical presentation in its original form, he had to provide the theatre with the text, which he does. Mm. Barry Kosky is my guest here on Books and Arts, and we're talking about his production of Saul, which is one of the highlight events of the Adelaide Festival this year. Let's have some more music. This is the British bass baritone Christopher Purvis playing the role of Saul. This is at the start of Act Three, and as you say, Barry, he's he's like King Lear on the moor. He's really he's really losing his grip here. Urge that I am of my own ruin. Valiant youth whose very name was terror to my foes, my rage has drove away. Yes, and so everything's falling apart because he's driven away, driven away young David. It's full of lines that can be <laughs> read in unfortunate ways, Barry. Where are my old supports? Is an unfortunate line, isn't it? Yeah, but when you when you when you read them, I mean, the, yes, it's it has a touch of the Monty Python sometimes <laughs> about them. That's sort of Charles Jones, I think. But when he's when when it's sung on stage, yeah. and and when it's performed by wonderful people like Christopher Purvis, um, who is a, who is a quite astonishing in the role, um, it um, it sounds. Pe- Completely natural. Mm. You, 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 you. They make a lot of sense of the text, uh, and I think that you know, in particular in this piece, the it's not just 
you know, um, monologues like this one when he's sort of out on the heath, so to speak, like yeah. sort of king-like heath, alone and naked. Um, it's also the sort of choruses. I mean, there are sort of wonderful images um, that you, that you get in the text and then subsequently in the music that are that are that are very vivid. And on the page, you'll go, oh, or in the beginning of the rehearsal, you go, oh, how are we going to make sense of that? But if you find the right sort of truth within the language and the music, then it's then it's a joy. Now, since 2012, you've been the artistic director of the Comic Opera in Berlin, and you've worked with all sorts of leading international opera companies. But I got to know you first as a theatre director when we were both young and in Melbourne. Well, what drew you to opera? When, when did opera enter your life, Barry? Oh, before theatre did. I mean, well, I was going to theatre. I mean, I, 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 I've, I've used this sort of uh, anecdote quite often because it's. I was very, very, very lucky and fortunate that at age seven, my Hungarian grandmother... Um, took me to Madame Butterfly in the Princess Theatre for the first time, and that was the sort of beginning of my love affair with opera. And I was I was extraordinarily lucky because by the time I'd finished school, I'd seen you know around two hundred operas and theatre productions. So I was I was infused with this art form of, of musical theatre. At the same time, also my parents were taking me to a lot of concerts and a lot of musicals. So for me, it was perfectly natural. I didn't discover opera. I didn't fall into opera from theatre. Like a lot of directors, you know, do theatre and or spoken word theatre and then move into opera or discover opera later. And for me, it was the absolute opposite. In fact, I had actually discovered opera before I discovered Shakespeare and, and, and written uh, uh, spoken word uh, yeah. uh, theatre. So for me, it was perfectly natural that music, that people sung emotions and sung stories, and and in a way, I it is my natural medium. It's like I, even though I've done lots of theatre pieces, there are theatre pieces that use a lot of music, but I always feel like a tourist when I do a Shakespeare play, um, or a Moliere play, or a Eugene O'Neill. I, I, I enjoy it very, very much, but I always feel like a tourist, whereas I feel I, I'm completely home with opera. What I love about this production is that you create a world of the opera, a world of the mind on stage. It's not as if you've tried to set it in the streets of Jerusalem. Well, this is a very, very important thing. And, um, you know, I think that, that it's a fundamental mistake that people make about these handle pieces. I mean, he wrote um, a series of, I think, about 12 or 15 astonishing biblical oratorios because it was forbidden in Handel's time to perform biblical subjects on the stage. And he wanted to explore the possibilities of music theatre, which he eventually did by writing these pieces of the theatre of the mind, as I said, um, where he was much more radical than in his operas. I mean, the operas sometimes you get sort of seven, ten, twelve-minute da capo arias where the singers um, improvise with cadenzas and coloratura, and this is not in the um, uh, biblical oratorios at all. There are extraordinary choruses, which you don't get in the operas. And I think the thing about it is that, um, uh, for me, it's a way of um, um, of taking these pieces um, and finding a way to create a vivid world on stage which makes sense for for the story. And, and with a piece like um, uh, Saul, it's very important to understand that it would be offensive to try and um, make this piece somehow resonate with what's happening, say, in Israel or Palestine or any images of the 20th century because Charles Jennings and Handel had absolutely no interest in uh, Jewish history. 
um, the characters, the music and the text have nothing to do with Judaism at all. The Israelites and, and, and the people of Israel are used as metaphors for the human condition. They're used as, as, as metaphors for our collective loneliness or our collective mourning or our sense of, of family and community. They've got absolutely nothing to do with Judaism. So to sort of, it's quite common for people to do productions of these oratories because there's also Belshazzar and there's also Samson and Israel and Egypt and I mean he really I mean he went through a whole series of, of, of biblical stories but it's it is absolutely a meaningless exercise to try and and put sort of if you way like Jewish Jewish drag on it you know to dress it up uh, as Jewish history because it it's about as sort of non-jewish as you could get in music and text so he's using these things as metaphors so there's not one single Jewish imagery in the production because I don't think it's about that. No, well, and as a result, the strangeness of this world and also the familiarities of this world just fall where, where they do and that's what makes it yeah, so powerful. Yeah, and I... And I think also that I, I enjoy playing with sort of historical time periods, and, and it's and it's it's not it's not a historical production. It's not an historical production. It's not set in the eighteenth century. It's set on in a in a theatrical world, which is has a logic from the first bar to the last bar. But that's the logic only of this theatrical world. So there are elements and resonances of all sorts of visual um, codes and 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 tropes from the eighteenth century, but. It's still very much a sort of piece of sort of contemporary music theatre because I think the psychology and the way in which they perform on stage um, renders it very, very powerful and, and, and modern. And Barry Kosky is the director of the Opera Saul, which was a centrepiece, a highlight, if you ask me, of the Adelaide Festival last year. Uh, now, Barry's production of The Nose is coming to Sydney next month and The Magic Flute should be coming uh, next year. I'm Michael Cathcart and this is Books and Arts on RN Summer.